Last week, uh, I was obviously in Nicaragua. I was with my parents, Dr. Forrester, a cousin of mine and his parents. And I'll say this, it was a lot hotter than it is here right now. Uh, when the Nicaraguan pastor says, man, it's a hot morning, you can imagine how we were feeling uh, sweating there. But uh, it was a wonderful time of ministry and service. And uh, as a church, you guys have been so generous uh, giving to missions. We had the opportunity to kind of uh, pour into the churches there. And in all reality, as we, we met on Monday and walked through with these church planters, we worked directly with 23 church planters uh, in Nicaragua. We work with about 80 different churches uh, centered around the Bible Institute, and then a future seminary will be starting again uh, in this coming year. But it was just amazing meeting with them and, and what God provided, and I hope to keep sharing some more, maybe catch us all up to what uh, Nicaragua Baptist Missions is all about. But uh, through your generosity, uh, we had intended and thought we were going to go in and be diving in on various projects and helps in about 13 churches, and God doubled that. And so we are, we're involved in, in about 25 projects that are taking place uh, in Nicaragua, whether we're helping a church build a wall or helping them build classrooms for uh, children's classrooms for Sunday school, whether we're building a second level, participating with the church all over Nicaragua. Uh, there are three brand new churches that are launching out in January. And from the graduates of the Bible Institute, uh, we're working with every single graduate. So six uh, people graduated, and we're able to work with all of them in some way, shape, or form as we move into 2024. And so, again, I hope to share some more about the trip, some more details, some opportunities that are unfolding. Uh, but the Lord blessed the trip uh, mightily. Uh, we were able to accomplish more than we'd ever expected to do. And it's exciting to see what God's church is doing in other parts of the world. Uh, Pastor Angel came in from Guatemala, and we'll be working with him in January 25, flying to a work in Guatemala to do a medical outreach. Uh, they love basketball, and so we'll be doing a basketball camp and now a basketball tournament. And so I'm going to try to learn how to play basketball. Uh, I'm not good at that at all. Um, at most sports, I'm not good at. But either way, uh, not that one specifically. But we're excited about talking with him. And, and as a church, that project there was wrapping up. And he showed me all the figures through the last couple years of working. And they were short about $6,000. And as a church, we're able to cover half of that as well uh, to finish out the church in Livingston. So again, I just want to say thank you for your generosity. Uh, it's going to work right away on the mission field, and we're excited about what uh, the Lord has done. This is the last message in Judges. We're wrapping up uh, this study. It's 15 sermons long, counting this one, uh, working through it. And it's again, My Way, Part 3, and this is where we handle things our way. Uh, anarchy is what is what we're seeing in this story. And I wrote down this because we read the verses that close out Judges, which define the whole book. When everyone is right, you can almost guarantee that they will not be right with God. When you're right, when you see that self, when you dive into your, your way, your thought, your, your methodology, all those things when you tie in, when you're right, you can almost guarantee that you'll not be right with God. Uh, you approach the holy God with your mind and eye set on your own objectives, and they will miss in some way his perspective. You will not handle life God's way. And that's exactly what we're going to see 
as we close out the book of Judges. You're going to watch the nation of Israel now. We've seen it in specific individuals' lives. We've seen it working through a tribe. And now the whole nation is going to come here and say to God, basically, we're going to do it our way. And they're going to try to weave him in. That's been illustrated, I think, in all the closing stories. And, and by the way, the closing stories of Judges are true stories that depict the depravity of Israel at this time. Uh, we've watched the grandson of Moses and a whole tribe engage in worship their way. Idolatry masquerading as true worship, which I think we fall into in the United States as well and around the world. We've seen the nation do life their way in the horrific display of immorality and utter brokenness in the story of the Levite. And now we'll examine the close of that story and watch a nation handle the issue their way. They seem to connect to God. At the end of the story, it seems like they're going to God all the time, but there's these key transitional points that we're going to watch. And that seeming connection to God is only in a casual way, they spend the rest of the time fixing what they've messed up by handling the situation their way and from a heart that is self-righteous. So as a reminder, Israel has approached the tribe of Benjamin. So if we go back to the story that we're in the middle of, uh, we have a Levite visiting Gibeah. He is in this city. It's a Benjamite city. Horrific immorality takes place, murder and so this man, in, in some of the most horrific way, gets a message across to all of Israel, and they all come to rectify the situation. They come with the idea of finding those who have perpetuated the wickedness in Gibeah and saying, give us those men so that they can be punished. Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, instead of handing over the wicked men, instead of dealing with that wickedness, they decide to defend and identify with those horrible individuals, and they plan on battling all of Israel. And so we come to Judges 20, verse 15, and it says, And the children of Benjamin were numbered at that time out of the cities, twenty and six thousand men that drew sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, which were numbered seven hundred chosen men. So twenty six thousand seven hundred warriors. And then among all this people, there were 700 chosen men, left-handed. Everyone could sling stones at a hair's breadth and not miss. And so they were sharpshooters, so to speak, in their culture. Uh, they are skilled warriors. And then the men of Israel, beside Benjamin, were numbered 400,000 men that drew sword. All these were men of war. And so what we're seeing is 26,700 Benjamites are ready to do battle with an army that numbers 400,000. Each of them, all or all of them, men of war. In other words, these aren't just farmers that picked up the plowshares. These are people that are ready to fight, trained to do battle. And by all appearances, this should have been an easy win for Israel. There are umpteen more warriors on one side versus the other. And it seems that those numbers, though, uh, give Israel a sense of confidence that coupled with their own passionate response has them approaching God with just a question without really seeing the gravity of the situation nor truly seeking his complete guidance. Basically, what we're going to find out is they're going to ask God's input on who gets the honor of leading the charge into victory without truly submitting to God and his plan and perspective. As you look at the close of Judges, it's easy to miss 
how arrogant the nation of Israel has become. And what we see is that they inquired of God but did not submit to God. And that's an important distinction we'll make throughout this whole story. They're going to go talk to God. They're going to ask God questions, but they're not going to submit to God's authority, to God's perspective, and the way God would see the situation. So look at verse 18. I'm going to read 18 through 25. And the children of Israel rose and went up to the house of God and asked counsel of God and said, which of us shall go up first to the battle against the children of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. And here we're seeing an answer. But God is answering their question, what they asked. The problem is they're not asking the right questions or submitting to him. It goes on, and the children of Israel rose up in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin. And the men of Israel put themselves in array to fight against them at Gibeah. And the children of Benjamin came forth out of Gibeah and destroyed down to the ground of the Israelites that day, 20 and 2,000 men. And the people... The men of Israel encouraged themselves and set their battle again in array in the place where they put themselves in array the first day. And the children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until even and asked counsel of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up again in battle against the children of Benjamin, my brother? And the Lord said, Go up against him. And the children of Israel came near against the children of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went forth against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed down to the ground of the children of Israel again 18,000 men all these drew the sword. In other words, Benjamin slaughtered 40,000 Israelites, the other tribes, in two days' worth of battle. They go, though, the people of the Lord go to the Lord and ask directions and who should lead the charge. They never, though, humbly worship or properly address the reality and cost of tolerating apostasy in their nation. And we're going to touch on it in a little bit, but basically God answers their question, And tells them who should lead. Who should go first? Who should lead the charge? Judah should. They've not asked God how they should do battle, if they should do battle, how they should approach this. There is no mourning about the sin that's permeated their whole nation. They're just fixated on the one horrific thing, which it is horrific. We talked about that. And they're determined to focus all their energy there and not deal with the sin that permeated the nation. They face crushing losses in the first two days of battle. And, and when you read it, you think they go to battle two days in a row. That's not necessarily the case. It's just that the first two days that they do battle, horrific losses, which expose their wrong disposition and approach to the matter. Israel's movements, their, their inquiry without real worship and humility displayed something about them, and it was self-righteousness. You see, they made the decision on what should be done based on their own righteousness. These people are horrible, and we're not denying that, but self-righteousness sees everyone else's sin and never looks at their own. And so they never humbled themselves before God. They never went to God and said, we as a nation are horrible. This sin describes us. Remember, God gave us these stories because this is what Israel was. This wasn't just who Gibeah was. This is what they allowed. We can look at the horrible sin in our nation and understand, oh, those horrific people, but we have to see something. That describes who we are. And we easily zero in on somebody else so that we don't deal with the sin that's in our life. The affront of Gibeah's actions was against their standard of what should be allowed. 
they weren't offended for God. They were offended for themselves. We can't have this in our world. And so their offense for themselves, not necessarily being offended for God, has them not seeing the depth of that sin and how it permeated the whole of the nation. Self-righteous. Everyone else is horrible. I'm fine. And how often do we not do that ourselves, right? See the sin in others. And again, I'm not one of those people that wants to sugarcoat someone else's sin and say, well, you can't point out the sin because you're a sinner. No, God says you need to make sure you know what sin is, no matter who's doing it. But here's the dangerous thing. Don't miss the sin that's in your own life. And then you'll be surprised how the sin that's in your own life is still just another version of sin that's seen in someone else's. We look at the perversion of our world and think, how wicked and perverse are they? And we miss how perverse we are. Because we're not as perverse in our mind as they are, so therefore we think we're not perverse. And that was Israel. They fixated on this wickedness that took place, and they should have dealt with it, but they forgot to see how it was through the nation. They set themselves as above it and started acting in God's place instead of mourning the depth of the sin and seeing his perspective and seeking his forgiveness and his purpose, which led to their self-confidence. They trusted in the fact that they were right and that they had all the might to carry the day. It's tempting, right? When you have 400,000 and they have 26,700, you think sheer numbers were going to overwhelm them. They can't do anything. And how hard-hearted do you have to be to have, and, and when the Scripture says they, they, they slaughtered them to the ground, it's giving you how quickly, how easily, and how completely they destroyed their enemy. It wasn't just we had a really intense sword battle, I got hurt, you got hurt. And it doesn't mean no Benjamites died, because some of them did when you look at the totals. They had to die in these first two days. But it was a very small number, and they just butchered Israel to the ground. They lost it all. And I put as a question as we dive into this story, because we need to see what happens. Do we display the same self-righteousness and self-confidence today? Have we decided on the course of action and then just bring God in on some portion of the details? Notice what they asked God. Who gets to go first? You know what they didn't ask God? Should we go? What do we do? What's appropriate? Well, humility, worship, repentance was what God was seeking from them. And they were just telling God, hey, by the way, we're going to go do this. We're going to go take care of Benjamin. Who do you want to start out? They already kind of knew the answer. Judah's been picked for, for centuries now to be the lead. It's who gets the honor, because that was the assumption. The first in the battle, the first to face the enemy, they're also the first to pick up the spoils of war. And so they're just asking, how, how do you want to be involved, God? Let's weave you in on the side note, and then just think about your own life and ask yourself this question. Do you bring God in with humility and worship and seeking his complete perspective and his purpose, or do you just tack God in onto some detail of your life? You say, well, I asked God's guidance on this. Well, you've already decided to do this, and now you're asking his will on, on what to wear to work the next day? Like God needs to tell you what, what color shirt to wear? 
versus deciding what job you'll take or the direction. And that's what Israel's doing. They've come in with self-righteousness and self-confidence. They are not sinful at all. They haven't seen God's perspective. They haven't acknowledged the depth of the sin. And they're asking God how they should drive instead of whether they should drive. They've missed the point. And do we miss in our lives the sin resident in ourselves as we condemn and pretend we are not sinful, pretend that sin is not permeated to the core? We should be offended by the horrific disposition of our nation. We are a perverse nation. It's sickening. The things that we're promoting, the things that people want us to do, and we should be offended as we worship a holy God, but don't miss it in yourself. Don't miss how you've condoned it and been okay with it and laughed at it. See, God is interested in getting to the core of the matter, and he's interested in his people dealing with sin from his perspective. The gravity of the sin taking place in Israel was not addressed by Israel. This horrific and real illustration was just the example of where the whole nation was. And so their passion against Gibeah was still just a cloak to hide the wickedness and tolerance of everyone else. Let's get really ramped up about this sin so that we don't have to deal with our sin. Let's really just kill these. It wouldn't have been more than 700 people and less than that because all of Gibeah wasn't involved. Let's get these guys so that we don't have to address this in our own life, that we don't have to deal with how we laugh at sin, how we condone sin, how we want our little perversion to be okay. We just don't want that big one to be permitted. They neglected to humble themselves before the holy God, neglected to mourn the sin and the extent that that sin permeated all of Israel, and they were addressed accordingly. They lose 40,000 soldiers. At the end of the sermon, I'm going to mention that I hope we're more attentive than Israel was, because sadly, this does capture their attention, and there's this moment in 26 to 28, where the nation of Israel comes to God and we start seeing some different things take place. It says, then all the children of Israel, verse 26, and all the people went up and came unto the house of God and wept and sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until even. And so we're starting to see a slight change in disposition. Now we're coming to the Lord, and instead of just saying, who goes first, or do you still want us to go? Simple little questions. Now we're stopping, pausing life. We're going to say, what does God want? What is wrong? They're fasting so that they can focus on what God desires. They offered, it says, burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the children of Israel inquired of the Lord, And now we get more details. For the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of Benjamin, my brother, or shall I cease? Well, that's a a question that's now opening up all the options, quote-unquote, to God. Do we do this? Do we not do this? What do you want? But what happened before it was burnt offerings, peace offerings, weeping, and fasting that took place. And then the Lord said, go up for tomorrow. I will deliver them into thine hand. So they returned, they wept and offered sacrifices, burnt 
offering was, was a sacrifice of total dedication. So they moved from this idea of give us a little hint of who leads and who gets the honor to we're completely committed to you. The peace offerings are, are highlighting dealing with sin, peace with God, dealing with this idea of complete trust in him. It's complete thankfulness to him. These are sacrifices that acknowledged their need of forgiveness, their petition to God for repentance, their commitment to God in the whole of life. And so on the third day of battle, we see a complete change in the direction of the civil war. First, and I'll kind of walk us through verses 29 through 47. First, we see a plan that doesn't highlight their might anymore. So they, they set up what they did with AI. They, they set up an ambush. They go out against Benjamin and they actually start retreating. And then someone comes from behind and ambushes the whole city, burns the city of Gibeah down, the wicked city. And so suddenly the Benjamites turn around. They see the fire behind them and they realize it's over. But see, it wasn't this massive army that suddenly won the charge. Now there is a strategy that God has instituted for them to win. It removes themselves from that victory. And so what takes place is an ambush happens. Gibeah is destroyed. The army of the Benjamites are destroyed except for 600 that hide at the rock Rimon for four months. Basically, they annihilate the whole army which would have been very typical for battle in that day. They have done war like they would do war. However, and this is the sad spin that happens to the nation of Israel, it ends with a vindictive and murderous switch, which involved the nation of Israel turning back from fighting the warriors of Benjamin leaving 600, which there's a chance they were a bit aggressive there. And now you see their self-righteousness and self-fulfillment taking place. They run off the army of Benjamin and kill them all, turn around and literally annihilate all the towns of Benjamin, murdering women, children, and non-military men. They revert back in the middle of God's victory to self-righteousness and self-gratification a decision that has them condemning innocent people to death. Judges 20, 48 says, And the men of Israel turned again upon the children of Benjamin and smote them with the edge of the sword, as well the men of every city, as the beasts, and all that came to hand. Also they set on fire all the cities that they came to. And I want you to see something that takes place in Israel, and it's a complete disregard for human life as a whole. Not to scare up, but I do think you need a sense of the horror that takes place. The men of Benjamin decide to do war. They die in battle. The military. Gibeah is destroyed. The objective was to punish those wicked people. They have been taken care of. If someone wasn't in the fight, They've been ruined. That city that condoned that wickedness is taken care of. But to turn around and decide to go from town to town and murder anybody too old to swing a sword, and then, mind you, too young to swing a sword, and then to murder every woman you see, every mom, every baby, 
every five-year-old, every seven-year-old, every nine-year-old. I want you to just get an idea of how horribly wicked Israel was, how vile they were. I don't want you to read in Judges and think, well, that's what God condoned. God put in his word what really happened. But what we see is a low regard for human life, a disregard that breaks God's law and ignores his emphasis on life. I just went to Genesis 9, 6. This is after the flood. God tells Noah, Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. In other words, God says, always take serious the loss of life. Israel was so ramped up that they went on a destructive and unbiblical rampage of murder. Life is held low when we humans give ourselves free reign. And that means without God's clear direction to act out our passions, even seemingly righteous ones. We're going out to punish these wicked doers. And then we get so ramped up without God's authority over us, we try to buck against us that we will have a low regard for human life. You want an example today? Well, see how casually an innocent life, the most innocent life, will be butchered to serve the goals of the adults involved. It's how quickly that, that we even talk about that. Oh, well, my life would be messed up if I kept the baby. Yep. When God's authority is ignored and the adult's or human's passion is the primary focus, well, then a low regard for human life will take place. And not to just get a zeroed on that, I just put this, humanity tends towards the disregard of life to fulfill the emotions they want served. We become self-righteous and self-gratifying. We look at what is best for us only, and we don't care how many people will die. Well, the nation's temper cools, and now they start weeping again about the loss of a tribe which again is a consequence of their own ungodly and horrific decisions, and they go and cry to God about it. Isn't that how we always do? We let our sin run rampant. We let our passions go out of control, and then the horrific consequences start boiling in, and then we say, well, God, what are we going to do about this? And then they ask a question of God, but again, never get his answer. What are we going to do, God? And then they proceed to give burnt offerings and peace offerings to ensure God's blessing, and I put in my notes, it worked the last time, so why not offer the magic offerings? These are not offerings done in total dedication. These are manipulative offerings. And then what we find is this second principle that comes out. They solve, but did not seek. Look at chapter 21. Now the men of Israel had sworn in Mizpah, saying, There shall not any of us give his daughter unto Benjamin to wife. And that just tells you that premeditated murder was on their mind. They were going to wipe the tribe out, and we're not going to give anyone, we're not letting any of us be a part of this horrible tribe. And the people came to the house of God and abode there till even before God and lifted up their voices and wept sore and said, O Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel, that there should be today one tribe lacking in Israel? Well, we know the answer to that because they're vile, wicked murderers that couldn't stop killing. And then it says, and it came to pass on the morrow that the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the children of Israel said, who is there among all the tribes of Israel that came not up with the congregation unto the Lord? For they had made a great oath concerning him that came not up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. And the children of Israel repented them 
for Benjamin, their brother. They, they were mourning, they were sorry about this, and said, There is one tribe cut off from Israel this day. How shall we do for wives for them that remain, seeing we have sworn by the Lord that we shall not give them of our daughters to wives? They had chosen to annihilate every Benjamite woman in the nation. Every innocent woman and child. And now they look for someone else to blame and attempt to fix it. And there's another horrific display coming up, 8 through 15. And they said, What one of, the, of there of the tribes of Israel that came not up to Mizpah to the Lord? And behold, there came none to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. For the people were numbered, and behold, there were none of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead there. <coughs> and the congregation sent thither 12,000 men of the, of the valentists, the most courageous of all, and commanded them, saying, Go and smite the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword with the women and the children. Verses 11 through 12, they kill everyone in the city except 400 girls that were unmarried. They just slaughter everyone except someone who would make an appropriate wife for a Benjamite, and they wanted to make sure it was only unmarried girls. And then it says in 13, the whole congregation sent some to speak to the children of Benjamin that were in the rock rimmon and to call peaceably unto them. And Benjamin came again at that time and they gave them wives, which they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead. And yet so they suffered them not. And the people repented them for Benjamin. Now notice this, because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Israel feels bad for Benjamin. They even go to the point of blaming God for it. And then what is their solution? Because remember, they said to God, what are we going to do? And there is no answer. They don't wait for an answer. They go murder another town, annihilating the innocent, and then kidnapping the young girls so they could be forced into marrying a Benjamite. And again, a low view of life, which we've already seen. And now I want you to notice something. There's a low view of individual human rights. Imagine you're one of those 400 girls. Your dad, brother, mom, any married sister, murdered. And then they drag you to be arranged in a marriage with the Benjamites. The barbarians that killed your family are forcing you to marry somebody else. Israel, as one author notes, is acting in complete anarchy. And that's what it is. They have no one ruling over them. They're supposed to be God's people following God's law, and there's nothing godly about what they're doing. They don't want God to be in charge. They are acting, as it seems, on their first whim. How do we solve these problems? Yet the girls that are captured aren't enough because there's 600 Benjamites and there's only 400 girls. And this is another fascinating thing. They bend their vows to accomplish their objective. They'd made rash vows before they went to battle, they said, we won't give any Benjamite our daughter. Then they go into battle and anything goes. So they murder a whole tribe. Then they turn around and say, what are we going to do? Well, basically, if you're going to solve your own problems, anything goes. And let that sink in because we do this so often when we're in sin. We start spiraling down as we try to make it right. And so they murder and kidnap from the town that didn't participate. 
but we need more ladies. How can we get around our commitment? We told God we wouldn't give our daughters. There are no one else. We've, we've wiped out. We've got 400. What could we do? We need 200 more. And then you look at verse 16 of that chapter. Then the elders of the congregation said, and just so you know what it means by elders, these are the, the, the highest leaders in Israel. How shall we do for wives for them that remain, seeing the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? Which I find fascinating. You know why they're destroyed. You murdered them all. And they said, there must be an inheritance for them that be escaped of Benjamin, that a tribe be not destroyed out of Israel. And they're focused again on themselves. Why shouldn't a tribe be destroyed out of Israel? They're not thinking about what God wants. They're saying what they want out of the deal. Howbeit, we may not give them wives of our daughters, for the children of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he that giveth a wife to Benjamin. Then they said, Behold, there is a feast of the Lord in Shiloh yearly, in a place which is on the north side of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goeth up from Bethel to Shechem, and on the south of Lebanon. In other words, they know exactly where this feast is going to take place. It says, Therefore they commanded the children of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in wait in the vineyards, and see, and behold, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance and dances. Then come ye out of the vineyards, and catch ye every man his wife of the daughters of Shiloh, and go to the land of Benjamin. And it shall be when their fathers or their brethren come unto us to complain, that we will say unto them, Be favorable unto them for our sakes, because we reserve not to each man his wife in the war, for ye do not give unto them at this time that ye should be guilty. And the children of Benjamin did so, and took them wives according to their number of them that danced, whom they caught, and they went and returned unto their inheritance and repaired the cities and dwelt in them. And I want you to understand who these women are first, who they've been committed to, and that the elders of Israel have decided that, one, they're going to keep the supposed letter of the vow, but not remotely the heart of the vow. We will not give voluntarily women... For them to have a wife, our daughters will not be their wives. So they tell Benjamin to steal the women committed to God. If you go back in time, which would be forward in time, Jephthah's daughter was committed to God and would have been one of the women serving at the tabernacle. This is happening before his time. And that is exactly who these women are. These are daughters who have been committed to the Lord to serve the Lord at the tabernacle to serve in this way, Shiloh, where the tabernacle was put up. And they turn to Benjamin and say, we cannot give you our daughters, but why don't you steal the women that have been committed solely to the Lord because it would be better for us to have this problem solved with those who are supposed to be dedicated to God than for us to pray about what God would want done. And I put here, they steal women committed to God to fix the problem they caused themselves by their aggressive annihilation and now aggressive and sinful and selfish attempt to fix it. This is the driving point of the close of Judges. Things will keep spiraling out of control when we keep twisting things, specifically God's word, to fix our sin. I'm going to say it again so you get it 
concrete, locked in your mind, things will always spiral out of control when we keep twisting things to fix our sin. They have ignored God's word. Genesis, they had Genesis. Moses wrote Genesis. They would have had it there for them. They knew about the sanctity of life. They knew that God took death seriously. God has never been casual about death. We're created in his image. He makes that clear. He makes it clear that he values life. Thus, he gives his son to die on the cross to redeem us and give us eternal life. And yet they have just brushed past that in a furious-filled passion to wipe out Benjamin. And then they feel sorry about it, and so they start twisting things. You see, it may appear that they finagle themselves out of being guilty. They solve the problem, right? Hey, steal these women, and when the dads come to us, the brothers say, wait a second, they were committed to the Lord. We'll say, you're not guilty because you didn't give them to them. Technically, they stole them from God. And you don't need to go fight God's battles because it's, it's more important that we keep our hands clean than we allow God. Why would we care about God can get more, more people dedicated to him? That's God's problem. And it shows you where their heart is, right? They're fighting for themselves. They're offended for themselves. They don't care about God at all. They've solved their problem, but I put here, but does that really make one innocent and free of sin and guilt? It may appear that they finagle themselves out of being guilty, but does that really make you free of sin? And then I put as a question, are we engaging in the same finagling over our sin? What sin of ours have we twisted God's word and turned it all around so that we can appear not guilty? Where are we acting like Israel? See, Israel Shortly after entering the land, and I want us to remember these stories are all uh, dealing with Moses' grandson. This is Aaron's grandson as priest. So all the stories before all happen after this time. They have just entered the land, and they've decided to do things their way. They worship their way, live life their way, and they handled all the problems their way. And in this last scene, we see all of Israel deciding what they would do themselves and then going to God for a rubber stamp on what they thought was best. It's anarchy amongst God's people. And then we have to ask ourselves a question. We are God's people. We are his church. Does the same anarchy run through our lives? And just so you understand, it's basically anarchy is saying there's no one above us. We are the rule. We rule. There's no one above us. We don't submit. We have to ask ourselves, are we guilty of the same anarchy? Are we guilty of bringing God in as a last-minute addition to our plans, giving him a minor role in the major play of our lives? All right, I want to do what I want to do. I'm going to act the way I want to act. I'm going to accomplish the goals that I have to accomplish. And then I'm going to find a way to, to kind of tuck God in to the side here, are we guilty of assuming he will rubber stamp our decisions as long as we give him that small, insignificant part in our life? There's possibility that someone's sitting here 
worshiping today and it's that small, insignificant part of your life. I'll endure hearing that guy drone on for 45 minutes and sing some songs so that I can make sure God is a part of my life. And I want you to understand something. Your worship doesn't count for nothing. It's of no value to you and God is not pleased with it. That's what Israel did. They added God to a little segment of their life. They didn't give him all their life. They didn't go to him for all their decisions. I put in my notes, that is not who God is, nor can the Almighty be relegated to the sideline of your life. I hope the lesson of 40,000 dead soldiers is clearer to us than it was to Israel. We are not journeying through life on our own with a superhero buddy at our disposal when we choose to use him. Because that's how we treat God. I'll do life my way, God, and when things get bad enough, I'll come to you for some guidance and some help and some peace and to help me. Maybe I need a miracle from you, especially if a loved one gets sick. I'm going to definitely pray a lot then. And if there's some disaster that happens in our country, like a plane flying into a building, by golly, then I'll definitely be praying to you. But at the rest of the time, I'm not interested in worshiping you. And it's the genie in the Bible syndrome that I talk about, but it's saying to God, it's great to have you at my disposal. And I want to say this, and this is what Israel is is highlighting. God is not at your disposal. You're to be at his. You're to worship the Almighty because he is the Almighty, because you're not God and he is God. No, I put in my notes, we are to know the supreme and sovereign Lord and Savior, submit completely to him, and strive to fulfill his purpose in all of our life and activities. He doesn't serve us. We serve him. We are not God. He is God. And what Israel is showing us is what it looks like when we think we're God. I put as a closing idea, are we inquiring of God yet not submitting to his perspective and purpose? We go into God and saying, well, God, give me this, give me that, and moving all the way through it, but not submitting to his authority, to his perspective, and to his purpose. And are we solving everything without truly seeking him? I know in my own life, when I examine it, I look at at how often I'm solving things and then tacking prayer and seeking his face to the end of it. And when I read this story, I realize how wicked that is. How horrible that is. How unworshipful that is. You see, that was the nation of Israel. Everyone right, everyone doing whatever they wanted without true regard for the supreme king and judge. So as the book of Judges closes, it says this, And the children of Israel departed thence at that time, every man to his tribe and to his family. And they went out from thence, every man to his inheritance. And notice who the possessor is in every one of those things. I got my family, I got my tribe, I've got my land, I've got my possessions. And it goes on, in those days there was no king in Israel, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And I'll close with this, and when everyone's right, they will not be right with God. Let's pray.